Hello, and welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me. I'm Katie Daly. If there's one thing Howard and I have learned through our Bluegrass Stories interviews is that the people who are most successful in our industry are people who work diligently in many different aspects of the business. One such person is John D. Weisberger, who you may know as a bass player, songwriter, bluegrass journalist, or as working A&R at Crossroads Music, Mountain Home Music, and Organic Records. Here's John and Howard in a wide-ranging conversation about John's background, musical experiences, and his thoughts on the future of our music. I started playing guitar and bass while I was in high school, Um, got introduced to country music, this would have been in the back half of the 1960s and uh, and heard and enjoyed some bluegrass artists uh, pretty much from the very beginning. Flat Scruggs, Carnegie Hall album I bought, you know, of course, that was just a few years after after that that show back mm-hmm. back in the back in the mid 60s. Uh, Stanley Brothers anthology, um, some uh, Monroe Brothers recording, some. Uh, Blue Sky Boys, which were kind of brother duets, sort of bluegrass adjacent. Um, so, but I really because maybe because I was grew up kind of on the periphery of country music. I grew up in Rochester. I went to high school in Rochester, New York. So there's a country music audience there. There's country music radio stations. So I heard heard country music, but I didn't. I had no point of connection with like the country music seeing their venues, shows, whatnot. It was just like sort of this one remove. So I had no reason to distinguish bluegrass in particular from country music in general. And so I had, like I said, Flat Scruggs and the Stanley Brothers and the Monroe Brothers um, and Bill Monroe Records and uh, Charlie Pride and Stonewall Jackson and Merle Haggard and Tammy Lynette, and all those folks. And that was all kind of country music uh, to me, which I've since learned sort of maybe a little bit of a throwback to the fifties. Um, and so I really became aware of bluegrass um, when I moved out around the time I moved out to the Cincinnati area in the, um, in the late 1970s and early eighties, I kind of went back and forth between there in New York and uh, really uh, Red Allen, honestly, Red Allen Kentuckians and some of the folkways albums that he made in the late seventies and early eighties really got me interested in bluegrass in particular. And I was, of course, I was in an area, Southwest Ohio, that was a real, um, uh, uh, there's a wealth of bluegrass there. And so that's when I really became immersed in bluegrass. That was sort bluegrass of the back world. end of, of the, uh, the back end of the big Ohio bluegrass scene though, wasn't it? Well, for the, the end of the, yes and no. I mean, there were some, there were some, uh, there were some, some uh, really fine, I mean, Red was Red was still around at that point. Um, Katie Lauer, the Katie Lauer band, mm-hmm. pioneering uh, female bluegrass artist. Um, there were there were a lot of, it, but it was it was not. There were not, you know, artists like the when I when I really kind of started doing that there in the late seventies and early eighties was there was a little bit of an interregnum. Uh, uh, before, this was a couple of years before Joe Mullins, before the uh, where the traditional grass got going. And so there was a little bit of a lull, but you know, Dave Evans was around the area a lot. Larry Sparks was just over in Southwest, in Southeast Indiana. Um, the boys from Indiana were huge in that area. Um, so there, there, there was a lot of bluegrass and it was an area that had a historical resonance for and had been kind of a refuge uh, for the Stanley brothers. Back in the back in the late fifties, early sixties, when the rock and roll boom was starting, a lot of people out. Stanley Brothers spent a lot of time in Southwest Ohio, Dayton, Springfield, Xenia, all around there. Um, the Marshall family was uh, active in that area in the late seventies. So there, uh, there's a lot going. Uh, there was a lot going on. It was a very robust scene, but maybe not of the. Uh, uh, not not as many national recording artists as say in the in the D.C. Uh, Northern Virginia area, but but it was very cool and it was interesting. As I started playing, so when I moved out there, I, I started playing in various bands. I, uh, I played around the Cincinnati area in the early '80s, and then I went and spent a few years in Columbus and played Daryl Adkins' band, the, uh, mm-hmm. the great uh, promoter of the uh, Musicians Against Childhood Cancer. 
uh, played, he had a band and I played with him a little bit when I was in Columbus in the late 1980s and with Tom Ewing, who was uh, uh, one of the, one of the last bluegrass boys working for Bill Monroe. Then went back to the Cincinnati area. So there was, there was a lot going on. It was a very eclectic scene in the sense that there were a lot of kind of like barn dance shows where there was interesting bands that maybe had a, had a banjo and a steel guitar. Uh, or had had a, a banjo and a mandolin and a piano or something. And so the the if you think about the Osborne brothers and the way that their bluegrass was kind of mixed with country influences and instrumentation, that's where they were from, Southwest Ohio. And of course, they were huge local heroes. So there there was there's a lot of interesting hillbilly music, I would say, going on. How, how did you make the leap period. from um, what classical training you had to uh, to something? other than classical and was was bass always your, uh, huh. your primary instrument pretty much I, I started playing the bass when i was about 13 or 14 years old in, in little local blues bands and then uh i don't know i just i i guess for as long as i can remember if i was interested in some kind of music that meant kind of learning to play it and um and so i sought out um I, I managed to connect with a jam session built around a music store uh, in the Cincinnati area. A friend of mine and I, first a friend of mine and I had kind of like a little brother duet act. We kind of worked out a bunch of old Lily Brothers and Monroe Brothers and Blue Sky Boys songs and whatnot. And play. We were not very good at all, but that sort of really whetted my appetite for it. And I eventually found my way into the bluegrass scene in the Cincinnati area. Um, there were a couple of great bands there, um, and uh, um, and so I started started playing bass with these different bands. And I, I kind of realized uh, when I when I returned to that area from Columbus, Ohio, at the end of the eighties and at the beginning of the early nineties, I sort of realized it's interesting. There were two different kinds of bluegrass scenes. There was a there was a a more uh, for lack of a better word, traditional or hillbilly uh, kind of bluegrass scene, working class folks in the area, in the neighborhoods that lived in the rural areas around Cincinnati and the uh, Appalachian heavy neighborhoods in, in Cincinnati. And then there were, and then there was another sort of bluegrass scene that was maybe a little more musically cosmopolitan, more kind of college people were involved to one extent or another. Um, and what I found was that I, my personal background sort of put me in that group, but the music that really, that I just was passionate about was all like the harder core stuff. And so, um, I learned a lot from playing. I played, um, uh, uh, with Vince Combs and Shade Tree Bluegrass, uh, for those who might remember Vince passed away a couple of years ago, but he was kind of a, he was a mandolin player and, and tenor singer in the Bill Monroe vein. Uh, I played actually. Huh, um, I played the guitar and sang lead in his band for a season. Uh, I played, as I said, with the with the with the Daryl Adkins and his band, and I just kind of learned to uh, that I and I felt this was the right thing to do in every respect was just sort of be quiet and really listen and learn um, and find and and establish myself as somebody who knew the music in a really authentic and genuine, passionate way. And, and, uh, and that sort of got things going. I, I wound up, uh, we started Union Springs um, uh, in the summer of 1992, I want to say, and that was the year I turned 40. So, um, so I was, I was, I was kind of on the older, older side of, and this has been interesting because it's something that has sort of carried through to the present day. The people that I was playing with and I was hanging out with and I was learning, you know, uh, engaged with were, you know, 10, 20 years younger than, than, than I was. And, that, and the same was true when I moved to Nashville uh, at the end of 2002 to pursue a full-time uh, bluegrass music career. I was, you know, that's right around the time I turned 50. And most of the people who arrived in Nashville at the same time that I did uh, were people in their in their late teens and early and mid twenties. 
and that's one of the reasons why I think why I've always had kind of a lot of connections mm-hmm. with the younger generations of bluegrass musicians. What, was there a college education involved somewhere in be, <laughs> somewhere before? Yes, in the were... in in yeah, <laughs> in the in, I graduated uh, from the California Institute of the Arts in 1975 with a bachelor of fine arts degree in music composition. Where was the point where? Where you, where you turned away from um, basically the object of your classical studies uh, in <laughs> something a little more traditional or more rootsy, should I should I say? When I moved to Cincinnati was when I really, because there was a music community for the first time, a roots music, a performance community, a bluegrass community that I was really able to plug into and start playing with bands and go out and play gigs at the, there was a, there was a, chain of restaurants, the ground round restaurants uh, around Southwest Ohio. And there were four or five of them in the Cincinnati area. And they had you know, peanut shells on the floor and, and burgers and beers, and they booked bluegrass bands. So spent years kind of playing in, in those with the, all different kinds of, of bands. And, and then kind of started getting more, you know, you work your way up. This is this is one of the interesting things to me about kind of the classic pattern of bluegrass. To me, when I think about bluegrass tradition, it's not so much a style of music or a particular sound as a way of learning. I mean, I really kind of served my apprenticeships in the in these bands that play the grand rounds, uh, um, uh, playing with playing with Vernon McIntyre, um, uh, working with Vince Combs, and and doing a lot of pick up gigs and fill in gigs with the, with the, with these uh, uh, artists who were, who came from a very, from, from the, from the kind of home turf of bluegrass from Kentucky and, and Ohio and Indiana, the super lively scene there. Um, and, uh, and, and that's how I learned it. And, and I noticed now that a lot of younger musicians, and I seen this really i guess i would say in the last 20 years younger musicians are more likely to start bluegrass bands almost like like the like the classic garage rock band model it's like hey let's get together and 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 have a band as opposed to sort of apprenticeship model that really served bluegrass i think in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and into the into the 90s um so but i definitely was more in that sort of apprentice mode so you spent how many decades as a as a performer, and I think recently I wouldn't call it retired, but you've you've recently stepped away from full time performance with uh, with Chris Jones and yeah. the Night Driver. So, how many decades were do you consider yourself more or less a full time performer? A full time. Well, so I moved to Nashville um, at the end of two thousand two to pursue basically a full time performance career. I had been playing, uh, like I said, with Vince Combs and then Vernon McIntyre, and then we started Union Springs and. In, uh, in I guess actually the beginning of 1992, and that sort of really wet my whistle because I I thought that was that was a band that was kind of touring nationally. We went out to Oklahoma, we went up to Maine, went down to Florida. We were really you know kind of playing the, the bluegrass festival circuit, and uh, and I enjoyed that. And uh, long story short, I determined that the, for family reasons. Uh, I left that band at the end of 2000, beginning of 2001, and, and was just really unhappy with, I, I, it was really hard to be a full-time musician in strictly in a local scene in the Cincinnati area. I felt like I had to be able to tour, and I really wanted to try to be a full-time bluegrass musician. Um, and so I moved to Nashville at the end of 2002, and, I, and started with Chris in 2003, and played with him until... Uh, until 2019. Yeah, but you know, nice long stretch. But by my reckoning, looking at some other other dates here, during that decade in the in the early 2000s, you uh, you also got involved with other aspects of the industry itself. I mean, I mean, you 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 were a noted songwriter back then. You were uh, noted in uh, print uh, print media, and then you got yeah. involved. In the, in that, so why why make why make the decisions a full time performer do get involved? Well, uh, I, because that I mean that was that was the uh, I had really kind of at that point I pretty much just started writing songs. I wrote I wrote all I wrote from nineteen ninety two 
to 2001, I wrote a grand total of about 10 songs, uh, 10 years, 10 songs. And um, so the, the songwriting really started in earnest and took off after I moved to Nashville. I started in, I was a stay-at-home dad and been playing music on the side throughout the 90s and into the early part of this century. And along about 1995, um, uh, uh, I was I was approached by um, actually by Ken Irwin at Rounder Records, who had been reading things. I was I was at home with a couple young kids, but going out and playing bluegrass on the side. And I would write. This was in the days, the early days of uh, Frank Godby's Bluegrass L, uh, an email listserv devoted to bluegrass on on the uh, 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 on the on the internet, which I believe is where you and I actually first crossed paths, and uh, and I was I started writing stuff. I would write about shows, and I would write about things I heard on the radio, and I would just like write these little essay posts, for lack of anything better to do. And Ken Irwin reached out and said, um, "Bluegrass now uh, it wants is going to do an article on Rounder Records' 25th anniversary, 1995." And I think you would do a great job. Would you be interested in doing that? And I said, uh, sure. And so that was just about the very first thing that I wrote as an article. And then I started writing reviews for Bluegrass Unlimited. And I started writing more features and, and uh, uh, liner notes. And so from 1995 through about 2005, probably my biggest part of my career was was as a music journalist and I won I won the IBMA liner notes award I won the print media person of the year award um so I was doing a lot of writing but that I found writing very stressful and I found playing music very not stressful and I thought I was pretty good at it. and especially this year that I spent out with a lot of valley boys where I was singing the third part and playing bass I thought well gee maybe I can do this but in order to do it, I really have to move to some place that where it's easier to, 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 to make a living. And so that was my move to Nashville. And so from, from the end of 2002, when I moved through, I'd say my first five years in Nashville, I was really devoted towards, devoted to the idea of amping up my playing presence and downgrading my writing presence. And so I, when I made, I made my first, uh, solo album, uh, If This Road Could Talk, in 2008, and it actually was intended to serve as sort of a, a an aid in this transition from being known as a journalist to being known as a performer and a songwriter, and and it definitely helped. And <laughs> so, and if and if songwriting well. if songwriting wasn't stressful enough, then you served a term as chair for IBMA. Yeah, so in, I think it was 2005, um, I was appointed to the, to the IBMA board and one of the uh, seats that was appointed by the board rather than uh, elected by the membership. And that was the beginning of, um, uh, of, of, uh, of a, long tenure and 11 years, 11 years on the, on the IBMA board, uh, two terms as, as, as an at-large member, and then three years as uh, the vice chair, and then two years as the, as the, as the chair too. I, you know, it, it was a little, little fraud. I joined, um, uh, that was the year uh, I joined the board right around the time that the big, uh, um, the big uh, Navy band controversy happened. And so it was kind of getting in the hot seat from the, from the get go. And, and it was, I mean, it, this was, it was a period of transition, particularly starting around 2007 um, when, when, uh, when, when there was the great gas shortage, the great Nashville gas shortage, right around the time of the world of bluegrass in Nashville and attendance really plummeted because people were afraid that they would get stranded in Nashville without any gas to return to where they came from. And then the following year, uh, 2008, that was the, uh, you know, the big, the big crash. And, uh, and so that, so just starting just a couple of years after I got on the board, the finances of the organization took a real turn for the worse. And, um, and the board spent a few years kind of trying to figure out what, what could be done to fix that. 
uh, we moved the world of bluegrass to Raleigh. There were a lot of changes. And uh, so it was a kind of tumultuous period. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to say I'm one of one of the things I did in my second term uh, as chairman of the board was to constitute a search committee that found Paul Schiminger. So I figured if nothing else, that was a success because uh, Paul didn't really help to to move the organization forward. So, so you 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 uh, you termed out of I, of IBMA per per their uh, um, uh, uh, bylaws and did you get back to full-time performance in addition to uh, songwriting after that here's the thing and this may be of interest to your listeners and, and this is true i think not just for me but for a lot of people in our industry who are who work as performers um, or maybe even not as performers but it is still it is pretty rare for a musician uh, particularly somebody who isn't a front person, who isn't leading a band, to make a living simply performing in a band. Um, more often, people perform in a band, and they maybe write some songs, and they give some lessons, and do some workshops, and maybe they have a radio show, or they've got some kind of little side gig that is that is music-related one way or another, at least gives them the schedule flexibility that they can go out um, and be gone for, for three or four days, uh, a couple of weekends a month. And for me, even at, at the, through, through all of this century, at least, um, I never made a majority of my revenue from any one thing. Um, I played with Chris Jones and Night Drivers, and so there was money from, from, uh, from touring and playing in that band. Um, I wrote songs, so there were royalties, and that's something that's, that um, is a very underrated revenue source for people who are able to write and get their stuff recorded. Uh, I did the I did the uh, radio show with Del McCurry for on, on Bluegrass Junction on Sirius XM for twelve years or something like that. I mean, a good long time, and that was a source of income. In the early years, as I said, was I, as I was making this transition, I was still getting a lot of my income from writing liner notes and articles and bios and, and whatnot. Um, and so, so there have always been these kind of multiple revenue streams uh, uh, at, at play that when you put them all together, they make up a living. You pay your mortgage or your rent and you can put food on the table and you can have a car and make payments and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of hearty har har talk in our bluegrass world about, you know, uh, uh, oh, there are tens of dollars to be made in, in, in bluegrass songwriting. And, and I appreciate the humor and the point of the humor, which is, you know, the, that we're in the sort of relatively marginal uh, economy, or at least a niche economy. But at the same time, I, I, I tend to push back against it because I think it's important not to discourage people, especially young people, from thinking that, no, I really can make a living as a bluegrass musician, but here's the things that I need to, to do and, and be able to do and be aware of. Um, and so that, so that was always the case with me. Um, you know, the radio show with, with, with Dell was, was great. I, I have so many fond memories of, of, I mean, I got to go sit with Del McCurry every week for, you know, a dozen years and talk about bluegrass and listen to records and, and, and chat about those. So that was, that was wonderful. And that, and that was part of my, part of how I made my living. Um, songwriting, uh, uh, particularly um, uh, over the last 10 years has really grown to be like a legit part of my, of my income that puts food on the table and helps pays bills uh, and and all that kind of stuff. So um, there's a lot to consider if you're trying to make a career as a as a full time. The way that I look at it is, if you if you're thinking of having a full time gig in bluegrass music, defined as playing your instrument and singing whatever you sing for in one band, that's a really that's really rare. That is still really rare. But if you're thinking about making a living, doing everything in which all of your revenue producing activities are music related, whether it's writing songs or giving lessons or doing these other writing or, or, 
in addition to playing, then it becomes a lot more realistic, you know? And so that's what I really tend to encourage people to think about based on my experience. Well, so that, that sort of uh, leads, leads us to current events uh, with, within the recent past, you, you left Chris and, uh, and you, you pursued a, a, a new uh, venture with a label. Um, and uh, we, we've talked to a couple of other labels before. Um, we've talked to Rebel. Uh, we've talked to Patuxent, uh, a, sort of a small, smallish label. And they're sort of all operating in their own, own, own universe. You, you, you were hired on as an A&R rep or, or as part of an A&R team. Can you sort of talk about A&R? That's one of those other mystery occupations within the business, which at, <laughs> at a certain level is all too critical. I mean, at some levels, it's, it's, uh, it, it's probably not relevant, but certainly at upper levels, it becomes very critical. Can you talk about that for a bit? Sure. Yeah. So uh, in, in uh, the summer of 2019, I moved to Western North Carolina and went to work for uh, Crossroads Label Group. And Crossroads Label Group is a company there are about a dozen of us working there and um the label group has a bluegrass imprint mountain home records which is home to chris jones uh to balsam range to the grass lonesome river band um uh unspoken tradition sideline um probably about 15 or 16 artists in all, ranging from, you know, very well-established real stars in our genre, like Sideline or LRB or Grascals or, or Balsam Range, to uh, some developing artists like Carly Arrowwood and Jay Lee Roberts, um, Fireside Collective, uh, Trey Wellington. And then we also have an imprint called Organic Records, which is more eclectic and, and has some kind of Americana acts, but also... Uh, Jeremy Garrett from the infamous String Dusters also has a solo career. So uh, he's, a, he's an artist with us. Uh, uh, a great uh, singer-songwriter named Aaron Burdett, who is more kind of, I guess, from a sort of singer-songwriter folk, almost Americana background, but who has had some success over the last uh, couple of years in bluegrass. Um, and uh, a great band called Zoe and Cloyd, which features... Uh, uh, John Cloyd Miller, who's the grandson of Jim Shoemate, who was Flatten Scruggs' original fiddle player and the guy who introduced Bill Monroe to Earl Scruggs, and then Natalia Weinstein, his wife, who plays fiddle, and she comes from a classical music background, a fabulous band. Um, so there's Mountain Home, kind of mainstream bluegrass, organic, more eclectic, including some bluegrass adjacent acts, I guess I would say, and then some Southern Gospel uh, imprints as well, Horizon Records, Sunlight Records. Um, and, and, uh, and so, so A&R, A&R encompasses two things. I think the, the term stands for artisan repertoire and going back to the old days of the record business, the Bible, which I mean, the thirties and forties and fifties and sixties, um, A&R, A&R people played something of the role they would they would sign new artists you know so they were out scouting and signing signing new artists but also doing a lot of artist relations um, and also the the r and a and r stands for repertoire and so the a and r uh, people were did some of the things that these days tend to be more often in the province of producers helping to find songs for artists to record and sort of overseeing uh, the, the, the production of recording in that regard. So there's kind of a, a, a fuzzy line between, between A&R and producing um, that I sort of have kind of been on both sides of. Um, right, I would say from a strictly A&R point of view, uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, either people who have reached out to the label to express any interest in, in our checking them out, you know, uh, uh, somebody that we might be interested in signing or sort of keeping an eye on the bluegrass music scene and trying to identify artists who are, who we think, you know, have, have potential and reaching out to them and, and working to get them signed. 
are are you working on both sides of um of crossroads mountain mountain home and organic or just or or do you lean um, more toward one yes. or the other no i've actually i'm producing artists on on both labels and um and writing some material is being recorded on 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 both sides the big the big uh uh dividing line in the company uh is more between Mountain Home and Organic on one side, and the Southern Gospel on the other. Southern Gospel is is it's 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 interesting. It's fascinating to me, and I really have enjoyed learning more about 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 Southern Gospel music over the last couple of years. It is not unlike bluegrass in the sense that it, it is kind of a well defined market. It's a well defined performance circuit, mm -hmm. uh, like bluegrass. The, Traditionally, there were a lot of emphasis on artist sales of product at personal appearances, um, you know, but again, like bluegrass, the, our Southern Gospel artists are, are uh, uh, working on establishing themselves and building followings on streaming platforms. Um, and the Southern Gospel side, I don't have a lot to do with it, at least in A&R terms. I mostly kind of help write publicity materials and keep an eye on on uh, on on marketing stuff and and so forth and, and more when it comes to songs and artist relations and producing uh, my wheelhouse is really more mountain home and organic so i've been you know and when i quit when when they offered me a job i said well you know i'd have to i'd have to quit the night drivers uh okay and i sort of realized that i was really ready to retire from touring um, but I, I told the folks at the labels that I really wanted to, um, you know, that I was still kind of, A, that I really wanted to continue writing songs, but B, that I was really interested in doing more producing, which to me is a kind of creative activity that is very much adjacent to writing songs and performing and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, so I've been working, working there um, and producing... Oh gosh, uh, I've been producing uh, lately with uh, Unspoken Tradition, uh, with Aaron Burdett, um, with Zoe and Cloyd, who's put out an album at the beginning of October that I uh, produced. We're getting ready to get back in the studio uh, with them soon. Fireside Collective lately uh, produced their last couple of sessions. Uh, Carly Arrowwood, who's a one fabulously talented uh, a young fiddle player and singer, and Trey Wellington, young African American banjo player, who's put mm -hmm. together a really good band and is making some really interesting music. So I've been in the studio with all those folks, and then also doing my kind of pet project called Bluegrass at the Crossroads, uh, where uh, we actually now have basically an album's worth of material recorded by three different. Uh, um, Special collaborations, all-star groups—I would call them—that that are drawn mostly uh, from the from the membership in the different bands on 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 our roster, and and um, uh, one of those one of the one of those recordings, uh, a, a recording of Ground Speed or the Flat Scruggs number that Earl uh, wrote, uh, won the IBMA's Instrumental Recording of the Year. So that's been that's been a, a really fun project to work on to bring people. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned Fireside. I I I think you probably know. I I interviewed uh, Tommy Marr, who I've known for a while, about uh, no a year or so ago, um, and and the subject of that interview was was basically the band's decision to uh, to turn from a self managed band to go out and seek professional management, and and mm -hmm. to try to attain a, a sort of a higher level of uh, of income and and art and if i'm an up an up-and-coming band uh and uh when when do i know i i should i should yeah. be a, approaching a, a label an, an a and r rep for a label or on on the flip side what what are you what are you looking out what is the label looking for out out there what level of craft of art are you looking for that would appeal to you business-wise every artist really is unique i mean that, and that's and, and and that's something there's just there's kind of no way around that you know and there there's there's really no formula that being said 
um, I tend to feel like, I mean, it's a lot easier to move an artist from 10,000 monthly listeners on Spotify to 50,000 than it is to move them from 100 to that first 10,000. And so, you know, and that, and that is, and, and, and the ability to do that, those, those kind of opening steps of building an audience, of getting some kind of circuit together where you can go out and play and people will pay money to come out and hear you. Um, of, of, uh, all, all of that, labels can't do very much to help you with that. That is, in general, something that you have to do on your own. And that's kind of like the first sieve, as, as I like to think of it, you know, when you're, you're panning for gold, right? So the, fir the first sieve, the, the core sieve is, is, is this an artist? Is, is this, is this an, a, an artist or a band or whatever who has some sense of what they want to do and where they want to go? And who has demonstrated some capacity because particularly now, I mean, I think this is probably always the case, but particularly now in the age where social media is such a critical aspect of promoting any kind of artist, um, somebody who has a willingness at least to engage with and build their fan base is somebody that you wanna work with and somebody who has none and who can't accomplish that on their own or someone who doesn't take, who doesn't understand that making records is a business. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to find a path to working with folks who are, who are, at, who are at such a low level. So what you really want, want is people who have some understanding that they need to be business-like, who have some kind of basic grasp of how you market yourself as a musician, as a performer, how you build an audience, how you use social media to, to get new listeners, um, how you uh, uh, entice people to go follow you on streaming platforms, how you entice people to come out to see your shows. Um, those things to me are kind of prerequisites because there's so many talented artists. There's so many great musicians out there that you can that 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 I guess that's really the, are you good is the first step. Are you serious about trying to make a profession out of this? Is the is the second one, and then you kind of go go from there. Um, but you know, Fireside had already put out a couple of albums on their own, and they had actually recorded an album uh, with Travis Book from the Infamous String Dusters, who lives here in Brevard, uh, producing. And, uh, and decided that rather than put that on their own, they really wanted to raise their profile in the mainstream bluegrass market, mainstream bluegrass industry. So that already tells you that they're thinking in this kind of strategic way. And they, they sought out management and then they approached us with this package, which we, we picked up, remixed and, and released. And then after things calmed down some with the pandemic, uh, we got back in the studio and I've been in there uh, producing with them. So, yeah. So, you know, looking for people who, A, I mean, and and I feel very fortunate because this is like absolute bedrock with uh, with uh, Mountain Home Organic. Um, we sign people whose music we like. So people have to be, you know, we, we have a team. Like I said, we have a team of about a dozen people. We have two engineers. Um uh, a couple of people working, and everybody wears lots of hats, but we have people doing a and R. We have somebody who works on contracts. We have somebody who works who's our main interface with the uh, uh, with our distributor and the streaming platforms and whatnot. Uh, we have some marketing people, uh, uh, but you know, like like I so I spend some of my time talking to artists. I spend some of my time looking at new artists. I spend some of my time producing artists. Uh, I spend some of my time writing marketing copy. Uh, you know, I spend some of my time working on financial management. Everybody wears a bunch of different hats, but the artists that we look for are ones who will who will benefit from and understand how to benefit from having a record label team 
working with them to promote their recordings. And, you know, uh, records are only part of a bluegrass band's business, right? They make records. Right. Maybe, maybe the point with your record is to have something to sell at the record table. And if that's all that you want to do, then maybe then you don't need a label, right? Because you can you can make a record for your if you can raise the capital to pay the studio and, and pay for manufacturing and all that stuff, you get to keep all the money. So if what you want, if you, if the idea of a record that you that you want to make is we want to have this record so we can sell it to the table for $15 or $20 or whatever, and that's the point of it, then you really don't need a label. Um, if you are looking to uh, get uh, airplay, well, maybe a label is a little more helpful because DJs who get a ton of records all the time, one of the, one of the sieves that they use is, is this on a label that I know? You know, so labels still kind of act as gatekeepers in, 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 in that sense. Anybody can make a record, but to get the attention of a DJ, to get the attention of a streaming platform who, that's going to maybe playlist your song, it's helpful to be on a label that everybody knows, oh, those guys, they put out quality stuff, or at least quality enough that I want to, I want to, it's going to, it's going to bubble up to the top of the pile when I'm listening for new material to add to my, to my show. Um, if you want uh, press coverage, that is something that being on a label can help uh, with um, publicity, marketing, promotion, all all that kind of stuff. Getting getting the attention of of other gatekeepers, whether that's journalists or uh, curators and streaming platforms and DJs and and so forth. So you know that's that's a. Uh, that's the value in the, in, in the label proposition, but, it, but, it, but that is not a value that, that works for everybody. And, and when you do the, uh, the initial song and dance with a, with, with a candidate, are, are there specific metrics that you're looking for with regards to, I guess, really social media or, or, or independent record sales that sort of ticks your box and say, yeah, they meet this, they meet this, they meet this. Oh no, they don't meet this. So, they're really not, uh, we should not be interested in that band. There's certainly not a hard, there's not a hard wired list of, of, of numbers that we're looking for. Um, more evidence uh, that in ways that make sense to us in terms of evaluating where we can work with recordings, is there something going on? Somebody who's already gotten some airplay on, on, uh, on satellite radio or on, on bluegrass radio, that's a plus. Somebody who's already developed, you know, who already has a social media following, that's a, that's a plus. Somebody who's, who's already sold some records, that's a plus. Um, but, there, but there's not, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's a more huh, organic process, I think, than, than that. You know, it's, it's looking at the, the totality because if somebody, if somebody doesn't have much of those, but has a strong sense of who they are and has some kind of map of where they want to be in a few years and has the music that makes everybody go, oh, oh, that's cool. Then, then that, that would be of interest, even if the metrics are not, even if the numbers are not at a particularly good level. You know, um, a lot of, I can't imagine ever signing anybody without having this real, kind of heart to heart conversations, you know, individually with, the, with members of our team and going out and seeing them play shows and, and you know, doing a, a holistic assessment, I would say. And, and, and without giving away in, in any, any numbers at all, can you sort of broadly discuss what the financial relationship might look like between an artist and a label? Well, so so a, so first of all, there are two different. There are essentially two different kinds of contracts that that record labels do with people, um, with artists. One is a lease, where the record company leases the rights of ownership for a specific period of time. So when we do a lease with somebody, effectively speaking, they are signing over their ownership rights to these recordings for some set period of time. Um, and that means that when somebody does a lease with us, typically 
I mean, there there are always exceptions. Uh, you know, this is every every case unique, but typically with the lease, an artist, somebody goes and uh, and and rents a studio and gets some musicians and gets some songs, and they go in and they spend some money on a studio and they come out with a finished product. And maybe they've designed the artwork and maybe they've gone all that far and then they lease it to a record label um, for a, a, a period of time. And, and the label uh, takes on the costs of marketing and promotion and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then at some point, uh, the, the ownership rights revert back to the artist. The artist never gives up ownership, but leases, rents the ownership rights to a label for some period of time. Um, and those are typically done on a case-by-case -case basis, right? You do a lease to pick up a particular record. Um, the other kinds of, of deals are exclusive contracts, exclusive recording contracts where, where the label pays for all of the production costs up front and then recoups those costs from profits. The, uh, from sales and from uh, uh, streaming uh, revenues, which are really just sales. Um, and, and, and the label then owns the rights to the master recordings, right? So when you have an exclusive deal with a, with a record label, you don't own those recordings. The label owns the recordings. On the other hand, you don't have to come up with the money to rent the studio, the musicians, pay for all that stuff. Um, and so, so, I mean, that's kind of the, 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 the basic deal there. And with each kind of agreement, there are more or less typical uh, royalty percentages, according to what they're talking about. And there's an artist price for CDs, right? Um, people still want to have physical products to sell the record table. So there's a, there's a, a physical price, um, a price for physical product that, that, and typically a minimum initial order, right? So part of the deal is we're going to make this record for you and you are committing to buying an initial order of 200 CDs and then you'll reorder as you, as you sell them, sell them at, at the, at the record table. And then uh, percentages, um, uh, uh, from from sales revenue, from uh, from streaming revenue, and once once you've been recouped, so that's kind of the, I mean those are those are the, those are the basic the, the basic elements of a, of a record deal. Yeah. Now, uh, as uh, the, this this podcast uh, we we hope gets listened to, um, younger younger people that are interested in, in the business, interested in the industry and, you know, thinking that maybe somewhere out there, some 16 to 23 year old is saying, darn, A&R, that's, that's what I want to be doing. I, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it seems like Mr. Weisberger <laughs> took a circuitous path to become an A&R guy and the, uh, and I just checked out the uh, the Berkeley website, and man, I can take a course and, uh, and become uh, an A&R guy. You, you you have any advice or any uh, any pearls for someone that might think that this is this is a part of the business that uh, really they'd like to dive into? Yeah. Um, well, so there's no. I don't know. And honestly, I don't know how many A&R jobs there are in bluegrass. Um, you know, uh, like I said, I, there are other things that I do besides A&R. And, and I'm sure that anybody who's doing A&R at any of the other major bluegrass labels is also doing other stuff. So I would say, I mean, honestly, I, the, the, any one of, one of the things that I have learned from kind of wearing all these different hats is that any industry involvement it could be a it can be a legitimate point of entry into the business and that people in the bluegrass industry especially in non-performing jobs got into them by all kinds of different paths but you know what they what they all had in common was kind of this immersion in the industry and a willingness to sort of jump in 
where an opportunity presented itself. A and R is is about um, having an under the the job uh, requires an ability to build relationships with people um, and to uh, so you know I mean, it's a people business uh, as 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 we say, but also to have either some kind and and some creative ability or creative empathy or something that enables you to resonate with with artists and understand what it is that they need in order to thrive in in terms of their recording career. And that's something that, you know, you've, it's not something you're born with, but it's something that you can't I don't know how you acquire that in a formal educational setting. I mean, I'm sure a course on A&R from Berkeley will give you all kinds of useful information. So I'm not disparaging that in, 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 in any regard, but just as with, you know, you can, and we've all seen this, you can study, you can go to all kinds of work, instrumental workshops, to learn to play the banjo or the dobro or, or whatever, and you can study and you can attend academies and, and, uh, and, and jams and whatnot, but the actual business, you know, all the aspects of playing that instrument in a band setting is there's, there are things that you only learn by doing basically. And that, and that's really the, the, the case with, with the, with, with A&R, but I would say in general, you know, like I said, everybody in at our level of the industry, everybody tends to wear a lot of hats. Um, and, you know, I'm sure with, with Rebel Records and with Patuxent and even with, with us, like I said, we, we've got the, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a dozen people in all working working at the label, but but anything that you can do, if, if you want to be part of the bluegrass record business the best way to to get started is to ask everybody is to, is to the extent that you're able to be prepared to do kind of volunteer work to sort of prove yourself in the outside of a financial setting maybe uh, find a find a, a somebody with a studio that's recording stuff locally and ask if you can uh, help out uh, and learn the 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 uh, learn the learn the the skills and the, the same with doing records generally. If if you are interested in, uh, you know, there are always bands. Everybody who's around the bluegrass business knows bands that need help with uh, writing press releases, um, with making social media posts, with doing. I mean, this, all of this, every little bit of it, is helpful in building a career. That includes, uh, or is even focused on this kind of A and R uh, role. Is, is there anything that you would like to cover that we have not touched upon? Yeah, I'll, I guess I guess one of the things that I've spent a lot of time doing in the last few years is kind of working uh, to be an advocate for diversity in the in the bluegrass world. Um, and and my thinking about it is. It's very simple, and I think it's, uh, you know, maybe it's helpful, or at least of, of interest to folks. I, at the end of the day, my deepest connection with this music is in the more traditional end of things. Three chord songs, a lot of banjo, um, loving, you know, when, when I listen to music for enjoyment, more often than not, it's Flatten Scruggs and Stanley Brothers and Reno and Smiley and the Osborne Brothers and Jimmy Martin and all the classics the first and second generations and Red Allen and, and the boys from Indiana and the Marshall family. And I mean, they're really pretty hardcore. Bluegrass is my taste. That's my personal, personal taste. And, um, and I am really, I really want to see that music survive and endure. Um, and I think a lot of times there, and, but it is such a particular kind of flavor musical flavor that in order for it to prosper or at least to endure from both an audience perspective and from a performer perspective there's no 
it is tremendously destructive to create anything but the most welcoming environment possible. There's a lot of people that are just not going to like Red Allen, <laughs> no matter what. And therefore, to, to exclude or make uncomfortable or push away in any way anybody who might like that kind of music, the traditional music, is just a, is just a terribly self-defeating proposition. And so I so so that is kind of like my practical plea for diversity. And I think it's very important because in particularly in this kind of polarized world that we live in, there is a tendency to court to connect uh, uh, to to make a specious connection between the between musical taste and preference on the one hand and age and demographics on the other. In other words, to say, okay, so, so in order to diversify the world of bluegrass, we must, uh, that means that we have to admit more uh, fringe, for lack of a word, for musical elements. And we have to include as bluegrass a lot of music that is, that is not normative bluegrass. Um, and I have seen, particularly working with, you know, writing with Billy Strings and going out to see his audience or with the infamous String Dusters and going out to see their audiences. There are a lot of older people that are huge fans of these folks. I mean, going back to the Newgrass Revival days, right? And so, so, the, so to, to assume these correlations between being uh, a woman, uh, between being LGBTQ, between being uh, African-American and that, that these communities are, in order to bring them into bluegrass, in order to welcome them into bluegrass, we must, uh, uh, that requires us to pitch a broad musical tent. Um, uh, I don't think is, is really true. I think that kind of short sells the appeal of traditional bluegrass. And there are a lot of older folks who are big fans of all kinds of fringe stuff and new grass and, and these variations on bluegrass that are less normative. And on the other hand, there are all kinds of people of color, women, LGBTQ uh, people and, and whatnot, whose, whose fondness is for more traditional music. And so it, it's really, it, it's, it works best when it's kind of all one big stew and you really um, uh, make sure that the, that the more traditional musical elements, that 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 field is as wide open and welcoming as you, as possible. So, um, do, do you think that the the classics the classic styles are? I mean, in in danger. I mean, uh, I mean, you 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 do have well some notable new bands, young new bands in that style. I'm thinking of. Uh, Oh, high fidelity and uh, Cody Norris, and and then uh, of course you've got uh, Paisley, who uh, who's out there. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, is that is that classic style endangered? Do you think? Yes, but I do think. I mean, I I yes, I think I think that this because, like I said, because it's such a pronounced musical flavor, it's such a distinctive sound that there are a lot of people who just are not going to like it. And that's all there is to it. And they might like other kinds of bluegrass, but when it comes to like the hardcore stuff that, 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 uh, that harkens back more directly and explicitly to earlier generations of bluegrass music, I do think it's in danger. I do, you know, and, the, and, that, and that's what the, you know, as, as much as I love all those bands, when you look at the numbers the, and the cold hard facts, like where is the, the weight of the bluegrass audience, it's not there, and I and I'm and and I love that music, and I'm very concerned that it that it survived, and that's why uh, Justin Hiltner uh, from Bluegrass Pride and I made an album in in, uh, in 2018 called Watch It Burn, and the and the purpose of it was to show that a band that included uh, old people and young people and LGBTQ people and women and you know this whole variety. Um, could make a bluegrass album that was all new stuff too, you know. So it was not just it was not just backward looking in the sense of doing only old material, um, but but looking forward as well. 
Um, we have a bluegrass gospel EP that we're fixing to release in the early part of next year. It's going to be very much this, the, the same kind of thing. You bring this diverse crew together, not to make edgy music, but to make right down the middle of the pike bluegrass music and bluegrass gospel music. And, that, and again, that was also the kind of theory behind the bluegrass at the crossroads project that we've done, where we had, I mean, I, I'm just the, 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 Group that won the that won the instrumental uh, recording uh, awards. Uh, Skip Cherry Holmes from Sideline, and a wonderful bass player named Kevin Kerber who plays with Zoe and Cloyd and plays jazz and all different kinds of music. Uh, Jeremy Garrett from the Infamous String Dusters, one of the premier jam grass uh, bands in the world. Darren Nicholson from Balsam Range, and uh, and Kristen Scott Benson. You know, so these are people from like all different corners of the bluegrass world. Uh, getting together, and in the case of Ground Speed, it was playing a classic, but most of the, the songs that these groups have recorded have been new songs, you know, so so I I just, I feel like that's a, that's a, a, uh, an important mission for people uh, uh, to, to carry out in the this world, and I'm trying to do my part. That was John D. Weisberger talking with Howard Parker about his background, musical experiences, and his thoughts on the future of our music. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and on KatieDaily.com. I am Katie Daly, and as usual, thank you for listening to Bluegrass Stories. (laughs) ¶¶